listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. That is if anybody's here. I'm assuming that many of our normal listeners were frightened away by the length of this episode. They just said, you know, Bart, who has two hours to devote to a podcast? For crying out loud, who do you think you are, Joe Rogan? And I got to tell you, I do my best to keep the conversations under an hour, sometimes even under 45 minutes. That's some sort of magical number. Uh, But I get a lot of notes from people that say, you know what? It would be great if you would just relax and be a little more expansive. Stop interrupting people and trying to bring land things in a certain amount of time. Just let it flow, man. Let it flow. And so this week, I let it flow. I mean, honestly, a big part of it was I got on this conversation, got going with my new friend, Greg Asbed, and he's just, he's just so interesting. I mean, you're going to see, I, I do very little talking in this, in this conversation because I'm just mesmerized by him. He's a great storyteller. And uh, so I let it flow. And I thought about cutting it. We, we talked about cutting it down or chopping it into two episodes. And John said, man, once in a while, let's let the long form fans have their day. And so if, if you don't have time, if you got here, but you're like, I don't have time, don't worry about it. You just, you go for a little while and then there'll be a break point and you can come back to it. It's, 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 it's not a conversation that you need to get all at once if you don't have the time for that. But before we get to this wonderful conversation, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Greg because in the conversation, we just sort of jumped in like you would with a famous movie star that everybody already knows their work. And I know that you know, most of you aren't going to know Greg's work. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. Then we're going to jump into the conversation. But before I get to that, I want to get to this. I haven't been talking about Patreon very much. More More specifically, I have not been talking about the wonderful people that support this program through Patreon who make it happen. And we added a couple. Georgina Marie, I know you're out there. Joel Miller. You know I love you, Joel Miller. And I'm just so thrilled to have some new people on board. But I realized that if we're going to make it through and keep doing this good work at this time, when a lot there's a lot of sadness and hopelessness out there, and we're doing our best. I, I, I'm struggling with it myself. I'm, I'm going to send out an email t- to sort of alert people to this program. And you're going to see like Bart's struggling with negativity except on this podcast, when he gets talking to people. Talking to people always lifts me up. And so if we're going to keep talking to people and sending out positive messages like we do, it's great to have Georgina and Joel, the newbies, but it's also great to have the oldsters. Connie Dollins out there in Oklahoma, don't think I don't appreciate you. Don't think John doesn't appreciate you. We know you're out there. And Daniel, Daniel Jones, come on. Come on, man. Just because 
Just because I don't hear from you as often as I used to doesn't mean I don't still think of you and love you and appreciate you. And so does everybody else who listens to the show, because you may not know it, but Daniel Jones makes this show happen, along with Rob Bronson. See, these are names some of you longtime listeners are like, hey, I've heard of those people before. That's right, because they're still with us. Listen, all five of you people, thanks for being part of the Patreon support thing. And I got to tell you, I listen, if you're part of the Patreon support thing, I know I've stunk recently. There's going to be a new Why It Matters episode up. And uh, I am, listen, I am not going to get on Facebook. I am not going to be a Twitter person. It's probably never going to happen. I can't engage with that stuff. It's overwhelming to me. And I think it's, I, it's very problematic for a lot of reasons. Some of them high moral reasons. Some of them just old person reasons. Some of them just like technophobia reasons. But I have committed myself to one social media platform this year. I'm going to be active on Patreon. That means that like the 160 or so people that support the podcast, that is going to be my social media place. I mean, we just got a whole bunch of posts from Thomas Stone. Thomas, don't worry. I'm going to get on there. I'm going to respond to you. If I commit to being on Patreon, maybe you'll meet me there. When, when I first left the faith, I remember my dad in one of those long conversations that we had saying to me, listen, you know, all this humanism stuff sounds good, but he said, where are your hospitals? Where are your orphanages? Where are your, where are your missionaries doing great work around the world? And, you know, I was so new to the whole thing. I, I didn't know. You know, he was sort of like, where's your Mother Teresa's? You know, where are your Martin Luther King's? You know, where are your great champions of social justice? You know, that sort of as if like people that weren't motivated by faith wouldn't do that kind of stuff. And I, I, I knew that I was still committed to those things, but I didn't know kind of who the champions were. And uh, I wish I had known Greg Asbed at that time because his story, which, which we get at in this conversation, which, which, which he tells, is really the story of somebody who is not coincidentally a humanist, but whose humanism, whose sense of, of wonder and joy and awareness of the, the, the privilege of being who he is has kind of naturally led him from thing to thing into certain kinds of relationships, into a relationship with his wife where they just now, they, they just partnered up when they were in college and they fell in love with each other because they were committed to making the world a better place. And, uh, and, you know, and, and, and it's not just, he's not just a guy who has big ideas and stuff. This is a guy who has delivered. He's the co-founder of the Fair Food Program and worker-driven social responsibility model that, you know, everyone from the UN government sources internationally, the EU, it's this market-based way of making things better for poor working class people and especially for farm workers. Um, yeah, Greg's the, he's the director or the co-founder. I don't know what his title, I know he, he he's the co-founder of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. And uh, I mean, he's not some Johnny come lately. He's been doing this stuff for 20 some years um, down there in Florida. And he has found 
he has not found like, I mean, when I say he is a big deal, I mean, like he's a MacArthur fellow, like he's a genuine genius grant person. He's one of those people that people look around and say like, oh my gosh, this is a person who is doing amazing work. But when I, you know, when I sort of trolled him about it, it was like, oh, you're a genius. You're a MacArthur genius. He's like, look, you know, as well as I do that one person gets the grant, but it represents the work of many. And I think you're just going to love his spirit his human spirit. There's a lot to learn from Greg and a lot to learn from his story. And so I'm just really excited to share this conversation with you. This, I, I, I haven't been so turned on by somebody in a long time. So, all right, that's it. That's my preamble. I'm introducing you to somebody who has done amazing work at getting, you know, transnational corporate buyers to buy in such a way as to make things better for the workers that pick the tomatoes, that do the work, that pick the watermelons, that make the thing happen. And he's involved in, in, in right now. I mean, he's got all these amazing things happening. There's one sort of holdout, like he's got McDonald's, he's got Walmart, he's got Sodexo, he's got all these big people doing the right thing and he can't get Wendy's on board and he can't get Nelson Peltz and uh, and his conglomerate corporate shareholders on board. And they're going to New York in March. And at the end of the conversation, you're going to hear about it. I'm going to post ways you can get involved. If you're anywhere near New York, if you want to write letters on behalf of this stuff, once you hear about it, this is, this is, the, this is the real stuff. This is, uh, this is grassroots level organizing that is making a global impact. All right, enough of me. I'm just trying to tell you that, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interview this guy like he's a rock star because he is. He's a rock star humanist, and I'm glad to introduce you. So here's my conversation with Greg. Have you, okay. do, have you done a million interviews in your life? Uh, I've done a bunch of radio interviews. I haven't done many podcasts, actually. Oh, I, I hate radio interviews and I love podcast interviews. And you yeah, no, like West- I listen to podcasts all the time and I love them too. You just haven't had the yeah. opportunity to, to, to merge our communication work with that, but we should. We have a friend who said that, that, you know, we should, I'm doing a class on human rights right now for high schoolers, which is really fun. And I have all these people I know from my 30 years in the, in the field coming and doing guest lectures. And my friend's like, every time somebody comes, you should do a podcast with them. You know, just talk. It makes great sense, but we haven't done that yet. Oh, it really does. I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. No, I, and I could even see you just talking about what are you going to tell the kids? Like, yeah. kind of like, you know, it just feels like, where are you teaching this class? Yeah, my son's high school, you know. Um, it's, a, it's an elective class this semester, and it's fun. It's just really fun. And it's creating all kinds of buzz and, and the, nobody knew what to expect. And so nine kids signed up, but we're, we're sharing the people, the guest speakers with the school as much as we can. They have these other speaking, you know, moments they can do with the whole school. And so we're doing that and people are just like next year, it's going to be the lecture hall because everybody's going to want to take the class because it's, it's fun. It's good. So, it's and good you, so your son, your son's in the class. No, he's not. He might be next year. It's for juniors and seniors, and he's uh, he's fifteen, just turned fifteen. Okay. 
Yeah. Uh, so, so what I was going to tell you is when we were talking about our kids earlier mm-hmm. is, you know, you were saying like, yeah, my son's 15 and he's, I like him a lot. I like, he's a great guy. And I was like, when my son was like 12, 13, 14, he was just so hard for me. And I was hard for him. Like we just, he was just yeah. so, and then it was at 15 that, and I mean, it, it was within like a month. It totally flipped. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah, he he got in a situation at school where he was on the football team uh-huh. and the coach had picked him out to be kind of the whipping boy and he did not know how to handle being in a sports situation when there was that useful kind of advice. Yeah, and that's the thing like all <laughs> of a sudden I was very useful. Right. Um and and nice. and he sort of was like, oh my gosh, my dad totally knows about relationships and how to figure this stuff out. And he would, I mean, literally, he would come home from school and like walk past my my wife and say, like, "Where's dad? Where's dad?" Which had <laughs> never happened. And um, which I'm sure made your wife very happy. You know, yeah. people love that. Yeah, she, but you know what? She was no, she actually did because like she was like, my son and my my husband are going to like never speak to each other. Oh, good. So she was cheering for the, for the change. And the truth of the matter is, is that like, we always had tremendous amount of, like he mattered more than anyone to me and I mattered more than anyone to him. That's where the conflict came in. And uh, yeah, from 15 on, he just became this charming person that John knows him. Like That's so cool. He just became somebody that's really easy to be around for me. And uh, he's super intense, but He's, he's my, he's my guy. Well, I, 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 um, we have had a beautiful relationships from the beginning, right? He is, he is in his adolescence now. And so that relationship is changing, but right. the underlying foundation of just pure love is still there. And, and, you know, he's funny. He'll be like, he'll treat us differently from how he treats anybody else. My wife and I. And, and we ask him sometimes, like, why do we get the abuse, right? What's the deal with that? Because you're like the sweetest kid in the world. Why do we get this? And he's like, because you guys have to love me unconditionally. I can say anything <laughs> I want to you and you're still going to love me. I mean, he literally, those are the words he says. So he understands the, you know, the, the I don't want to call it a game, but he understands the rules and, uh, and he's right. You know, and so he, he practices his, his rebellion, you know, with us. But fundamentally, he's just an amazing kid and we're incredibly lucky, you know? Yeah, I remember with my daughter, she was that way. And we would go to school and they would say, oh, she's just a delight. Everyone likes her. She's so respectful. (laughs) And we're going like, what? Um, (laughs) You got a different girl in mind, not my girl. And and then eventually one of the teachers said, you know what? It's a lot of work. It's a lot of energy to keep yourself together for a whole school day. And so she comes home mm-hmm. and she's exhausted mm-hmm. and, and she's like, mm-hmm. I don't have to do that here. Yeah. I can be, I, no, yeah, I can, I can let, let, let it go. And yeah, I, it's kind of especially, a especially compliment. at this age. Right. Yeah. No, it right. Is. I mean, they're saying that I'm, I'm totally cool with you, right? Like I don't have to be anybody that's not myself with you. And that's good. Right. The, uh, it doesn't translate into the best of, you know, of, of <laughs> communications in the moment, but, um, but it is, it is good. And, and it does make total sense because, at this age, they are trying so hard to figure out who they are. And it's it's tough for them, man. I mean, I don't see that. No human being. I mean, think about if we grew by a foot in a year. Like, just that alone. You know, you'd be like, what is happening to me? To my body. You know? 
Yeah, there's all of that happening, you know, sprouting stuff you didn't have before and all this, you know, so that's going on. And then internally that that's accompanied by new chemical baths that you take like you never took before, you know, and then you've got the fact that you're still a kid, really, but people keep varying expectations on you where you're supposed to start thinking like an adult. And, and it's this, it's this particular period that's like that. You know, yeah, so and the, the fact that and, you get out of here unscarred is amazing. Most kids. No, you know? and, 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 you know, for your son, the adults have no idea uh, the, the, the landscape of world that you're growing up in because the technology everything has changed is. everything yeah. Yeah. in terms of how kids talk to each other. The, you know, I mean, I remember they when don't. I was a kid. No, they I would don't go talk to, to each other. They d- no, they they don't, or or they call it talking. Like they'll say, like, yeah, I was talking to, so I was talking to Joey yesterday, and I'd be like, really, um, and, and it turns out they were just texting. Yeah, but they call that talking, chatting, or whatever the hell. Yeah, no, exactly. Right. No, and 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 you know, he do, our kid does not have any social media, which is a beautiful thing. You know, like, so I'm really. It is, but but the, but the, that ecosystem is still happening around him. Oh no! It, it, and, and it so, filters into the to the other relations, no doubt. Yeah, and secondhand smoke. Not having those. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like contact high, but the uh, but the other you know aspect of it is that you lose some of the channels of communication that that everybody else is using by doing that. But the the cost benefit analysis, you know, social media is especially at this age when they're all trying to be who they are not yet is so curated and so ungenuine, you know, that it creates an intense pressure on kids and to be that, what that curated self, all their friends are being. And they, and only the kid knows how he or she doesn't measure up. And that's a, that's a pressure that none of us understands at all. You know, because it's it's nothing we ever went through. It's nothing we ever went through. And so Mm -hmm. that's the other weird thing is that it used to be that as a, like I said, like when my kid's 15 and he's fighting it out on the football team, like I was on a team, I had a rough coach, like I can give him actionable advice, but like much of what kids go through today, you don't, you know, and especially if you're an older parent, like you're old, you know, like Mm -hmm. I was closer to my kid's age than you are. No, I'm definitely on the older side of the spectrum. That was so 43 the, when we had him. You know. Right. So the 43. gap, I mean, on some level that's beautiful because, you know, all my friends that had kids in their forties and fifties, they're like, they almost have grandparent joy. Like <laughs> they're old enough to know how wonderful a young life is. I was talking to a buddy the other day and he said, he said, I go to my kid's school and all these young parents are complaining about, oh, it's so tough and you have no time and you can't sleep. And he, and he said, I'm just thinking to myself, it's amazing. This I don't is sleep wonderful. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> My nights are getting shorter already. It doesn't matter. Yeah. No, he was, yeah. And he, he was just like, he said, I thought it was grandparents that like there was something special about being a grandparent. But he said, I think it's just being old enough to appreciate young life. Yeah. No. And, and there's not, look, anytime you have a kid is the right time. But the, for us it was the right time because we felt like we had, you know, we loved my wife and I love being us as much as you could possibly. Evidently, love being. you did it for a long time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we also love the work we do, you know. And it was all consuming. Like the work plus us was all consuming, right? And and we worked together. So that you know that was uh, there was no need to change. 
that. It's kind of like the kid who doesn't learn to speak until he's like four and somebody's like, he speaks a full sentence and somebody's like, why did, why did you not speak before? Is it, I, I didn't need to, (laughs) everything was good up till now. Right. uh, You know, we didn't need to have the, the new being in our life, but when we did, we got this one. And so you have every, you are ready and you have 42, 43 years of, of life experience to share. You know, mm-hmm. and and that's what you do as a parent. I mean, I, I don't know if it keeps going on, but I know up to this point, the the, the role of that we play is sort of here's how we, you know, experienced and see the world. In case you're looking for some some help, which is exactly what you did with your with your football story. You know, it's yeah, like yeah. here's how I experienced things. Here here's how I got through it. If it helps, have it. You know, and so if you got. 42 or 43 years of that, your bag is pretty full, you know? All right. So back me wave, way the heck up. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, before we came on, before we turned on the microphone, like you were telling me that you and your wife connected when you were 20 years old, you've been together mm-hmm. 36 years. We did indeed. Yes. So, so where did you come from? Like, t- like, you know, it's like, tell me about yourself. Like, like I sprung you, fully formed from the head of, where, where did you get, where did you get born? Uh, I was born in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins hospital. Um, I'm a proud, proud son of Baltimore for one year. Um, and then eventually we grew up in, you know, outside of DC, um, in the rock a place called Rockville and, uh, had a pretty nice little childhood there. What, and, were, you, what, uh, were, you, what was, what were your parents doing? My parents were both there in science. My mother was a doctor and uh, she was, she ran Montgomery County public health, which was pretty cool. She did not practice medicine. She did public health as a choice and, uh, and did some great stuff. She brought Head Start to Montgomery County. She just did a whole bunch of fantastic work, you know? Um, And my dad was a nuclear physicist by training. And then he ended up working with, the army, oh. but he was, yeah, yeah. No, he's he's. They're both pretty wild people, but his story is intense. I mean, he he was born the son of an Armenian genocide survivor in nowhere in the northern Syria, um, because they had, my grandmother had been at age thirteen. She lost all of her family except her sister to the Armenian genocide. She was on a death march through Turkey. And was bought from the Turks by Kurds and then sold again to an Armenian family, which was my, my father's, my, my grandfather's family. Um, and then she was 13. She got sold into marriage, had my father. And two years later, my grandfather died. So they moved to Kobani, the town that may sound familiar in Syria, um, because it was the area of some pretty intense atrocities not so long ago again based on racial and ethnic division it's just like history repeats itself or something um but anyway so he came from less than nothing and with some dna that was pretty jealously guarded through some pretty horrible um journeys you know and uh and because he was so good at school you know he just kept getting his school paid for by the Armenian diaspora, you know, because after the genocide, they they pretty much wiped out 
the Armenian population living in Turkey, and then it had been sent in pieces to different parts of the world. And the, the more comfortable part of the diaspora made sure to help the poorer kids get education. And because uh, education for Armenians is pretty much everything. And, uh, and so he got that. And he ended up working his way through American University uh, in Cairo to um, Niels Bohr's lab in Denmark. <laughs> and then Niels Bohr wrote a recommendation for him to Johns Hopkins and uh, came to the U.S. that way. This little, little tiny peasant son of the genocide, you know. Holy mackerel. Yeah. And then to raise his family, he had to actually kind of abandon the path of, of academia and get into working for the, the U.S. for the military. You know, he was a scientist who did work for the military. Um, and I couldn't visit his office. <laughs> it, was, it was like, nope, can't even come near the yeah. office. Stay away. So, he didn't talk, and he didn't talk much about what he was working on. No, although one of our friends, close friend, my dad was president of the Armenian General Benevolent Union, AGBU, which is a diasporan organization in D.C. And, uh, but he would trade back and forth the presidency with another guy who was a good family friend. And the two of them, these kind of young, successful, you know, um, professionals were leaders in that, in that community organization. The other guy was also involved in some top secret stuff. And he ended up getting busted because his cousin was working for the Soviet Union and he was bringing stuff home that his cousin was, was uh, copying or whatever it was. On purpose? With, with on purpose side. was he sharing it with his cousin or, or was he, his cousin working him over? You know I don't know. I don't he was know. a friend, but he's a friend. He's a friend. Yeah, but he got he got busted, you know. And 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 we kind of got we got followed a bit for a while, but with all that, but it went away, you know, which was wow, nice. Yeah, it was a weird time back then. The the seventies were an interesting time, you know. I love them. I love the seventies. Favorite decade, right? And and like y you and me, because we're the same age. Um, good. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, so yeah. So like in the seventies, we were like, that was when we were running around on our, on our spider bikes and, <laughs> and, you know, playing games and, and growing up. It and was you, a great you, time to grow up. It was a great time yeah. to grow up because you had total freedom, right? You had this, oh, yeah. this idyllic, you know, cage free life, you know? Um, but also in the country, it was a pretty cool time. You know, I like, I, I have this pretty strong theory of mine, which is that it was sort of the second reconstruction, you know, the, that 10 year period, you know, the 10 year period after the civil war was an amazing time of progress, right? In the South. I mean, there mm -hmm. was still all kinds of stuff to be cleaned up, but because there was a military occupation of the South, there was a lot of stuff that happened that was a lot better, including, you know, representation by African-Americans in Congress and, and just, and some economic experiments went on with, with making things more equal. Um, and then it was shut down just like that 10 years later with this compromise with, you know, I think it was McKinley or whoever it was that became president. Um, the last Republican president for a while after the, after the, the civil war in exchange for removing the troops from the South. You take the troops out of the South and KKK and Jim Crow became the law of the land is for the next 90 years, right? The civil rights movement, which was like the third effort to actually create 
the American Revolution that we all thought we were getting the first time. The Civil Rights Movement had its victories, Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, that then gave way to a lot of progress in the 70s. You know, people started being able to work, African-American Americans started being able to work in jobs outside of the very few they could actually have before then. You know, women started to have greater equality. You know, yeah, I mean, economic I, I know equality I, was happening. And then, I know bam, I, 80 was shut down again. Right. So. And, and I mean, I know you and I were kids at that time, mm-hmm. but I was growing up on a college campus that had a yeah. fairly large African-American population. Mm-hmm. And I remember the, like, like, and I'm sure I'm idealizing it, but the vibe was the racial politics on that campus. Were changing. I mean, the, right. And they, they were. And the black kids were very um, vociferous and I would say, I don't want to say militant, but they were very active. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, there was there a were fr- occupying there spaces was a that they friend- couldn't even touch before. You know, yeah, that, that's but there was the a friendliness thing. about it and um, yeah. like it, yeah. or, or an idealism, I guess is maybe a better word. Like it wasn't this kind of cynical, I'm going to get mine. Like I'm going to use, like, I, like I, I, I'm going to, sometimes when I see the racial stuff, it feels like a lot of the leaders are, they're, they're using it's more individual big, than, than it is kind of that. Yeah. It's about getting, yeah. it's about getting stuff for their organization or their thing or their, it's, it's not as idealistic as, as it felt like it was in the seventies. No, I mean the seventies, the seventies was a time of increasing equality, decreasing discrimination, increasing, um, hope that we might be that country where everyone was created equal. It wasn't that it was done. It wasn't that it was finished, right? But we we were the the vector was heading in the right direction, and yeah. and toward that, all people are created equal. The great promise of the first revolution that was so distant from the reality that it created all the social energy for change that happened over the next two hundred years. You know, right. be, between the American Revolution and the Civil War, which was fought over two ways of resolving that that contradiction between all men are created equal and slavery is a protected institution in this country. Those two things in in seventeen seventy six that were that were the foundation of this country, that contradiction was attempted to be resolved in two different ways. One was to eventually abolish slavery. The other one was to say, no, we got that wrong. All people are not created equal. That was the Confederacy's position. If we take away the all men are created equal, that also resolves the conflict. And that's what the Confederacy was based on. If you look at like the cornerstone speech by Alexander Stevens, the, the vice president of the great institution of the Confederacy, where he just comes out and says, no, nah, that was wrong. What's right is that God created two kinds of people, one to be subservient to the other, one superior to the other. And and that and that is what we found. That's what this great country of the Confederacy is founded on, you know. And it's only a hundred years later when everybody's trying to confuse the issue and talk about states' rights and everything else. But at the time, they were clear as could be that that was oh, yeah, that yeah. was that 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 contradiction they were trying to resolve, but not by abolishing slavery, which is the logical way to re- absolve it or resolve it, but by <laughs> Fixing God, <laughs> saying no, God didn't really mean everybody's created equal or any of that stuff. It's that there's two kinds of people, and well, then we had know, that same you, issue you, you, built into it hundred years later. And, and I don't sense 
maybe I'm wrong. Like I don't want to make an assumption, but the the way you described your parents, did you you didn't grow up in in kind of heavy duty Christianity, did you? No, no, no. We I were part of that so. '70s. You know, I mean, Carl Sagan would have been the priest of our of our home. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, I had I, I had mean, his daughter on the show a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, um, so Sasha jealous. Sagan. Would, yeah, she, would, oh, she's. Would, she, you know, he, he, um, have you ever seen the, the, when I was in the early years of our son's life, um, when he started to actually start to watch videos, he was, you know, five or six, whatever. Um, there's one that's called, we're all connected. We are all connected. It's a, it's an amazing video. If you haven't seen it, no. you should check it out. It's probably the most perfect sort of, um, encapsulment of of what it is to be a, a secular humanist frankly but it's got carl sagan and all these other you know stars of the of the um scientific firmament from the 70s on um and he has a line in there carl it's a video so it's set to music and it's incredibly well done but he says i find it elevating and exhilarating to discover that we live in a universe which permits the evolution of molecular machines as intricate and subtle as we. And that sentence, which is perfect Carl Sagan, by the way, right. um, is, is, is sort of how I was raised. You know, it's, it's exhilarating to, through scientific discovery, to learn just how amazing nature is. And your own, and how improbably wonderful your own existence is. I just, I just lost you. Sorry about that. Be, Where'd so, you go? Can you say that again? Yeah, and how improbably wonderful. Yeah. Where? What happened to you? It just went. It kind of got garbled. I'm here. Oh, can you okay. hear me? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Okay. No. I was just gonna say, like, not just how amazing the universe is, but also how incredibly, improbably wonderful your own existence is. Yeah, like exactly. You know, the wonder of you. No, and and what's interesting about it is no matter how distasteful you might find another person, <laughs> which, which I'm sorry to say, they are still increasing. a wonder. <laughs> yes, yeah, they are right. still a wonder. They are still the product of billions of years of of evolution, you know, and of stardust becoming us and. And all that same intricate and subtle molecular machinery is present in them as well, you know, and it's just, it's so remarkable, you know, and, and that is to me, that's kind of that sense of wonder, that sense of discovery is, is the awe that I think others might feel if they're raised in the church. So, so that I'm going to pull you back from that tangent of tangents. Because mm -hmm. you're now out in the molecular universe. And I'm like, but like that Quickly. started with, I was growing up in Washington in the 70s and that was an amazing time. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I don't know if you, did, did, I don't know if you saw the Tarantino movie, um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I did. Um, I did. People have very mixed feelings about that movie. But in one sense, it captures some of the, it like to me, it felt, it had a vibe like the 70s I knew. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, and, and I loved it that he like changed the ending and was, you know, cause, cause the seventies got 
wrecked. Like that that idealism didn't last. And like you said, 1980 happened and what, Reagan got elected president <laughs> and, you know, and everything changed. Um, but there's a sense in which Tarantino's movie is sort of like, but what if it hadn't? What if, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what if it didn't no, it go was, away? It was, a, it was a great time. I mean, it was a great time in a lot of ways just because Again, not because the change that we wanted was, you know, that we everybody was hoping for was complete, but because it was headed in the right direction. And yeah. and it feels good when you're headed in the right direction. Anything feels possible when you're headed in the right direction. Right now, what's it feel like in this country? Oh, I mean, it feels it feels like we're being stuck into a cage. You know, it or, feels like to me it feels like the end. To me, it feels like yeah. the end of like the end of the world. Like I feel like I am in an apocalyptic movie in which. Yeah. You know, and so we'll get there. But like, I want to go back to <laughs> yeah. the seventies. So like, by, you're growing up in the seventies, yeah. right? With, with the scientist parents, you know, who are like. Also, it sounds like your mother's sort of like this justice-oriented science parent, in a very midwestern like, army brat kind of way. Yes, she okay. was like we had Reader's Digest in the house. You know, um, uh -huh. the World Book Encyclopedia. Yeah, you know? um, all those all those little touchstones of of sort of. You know, we watched Highlights, Carol Burnett. Highlights you know. magazine. Yeah. <laughs> For the kids. Goofus yeah. and Gallant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, when and, you're and in the dentist's office. And all that kind of right. stuff. Yep. And, uh, and so they, you know, but at the same time, you know, they were against the war in Vietnam and, and they, their friends were all sort of, they also were older parents in their forties when they had us. Okay. Yeah. You know, um, and so their friends were all kind of younger and, and more in the, more overtly political than they were. But my parents, you know, my father was an immigrant. And at that time, it wasn't, you know, it's very difficult to be an immigrant now too, right? Um, at that time, it wasn't as difficult in certain ways as it is now, but he still felt the pressure to try to be as American as possible, right? And to ensure that his kids be as American as possible. Because when you're the son of a genocide, the last thing you want to do is stick out. Right. No, that's just the sort of lesson you learn in this universe is try not to be with your head above the, the, the fray there. Um, and so, you know, he named me Greg as opposed to Krikor, which would be my Armenian name. And, you know, Greg, St. Gregory is the patron saint of Armenia, but it's not his name isn't Gregory, it's Krikor. Right. But he named me Greg and he changed his name when he got here in a hilarious way, really beautiful way. Um, his name was Sarkis Nabandian. So my name would have been Krikor Nabandian. That would be my name, right? But he changed his name to Norig Asbed. Norig in Armenian means new man. And wow. Asbed means kind of like, it's this, it's this cast of, of ancient knights that, that preserved, that saved the, the race, you know, back in the day. And so he became kind of like new man's knight in shining armor when he came to this country, literally. Little and, on the nose uh, there, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but he, um, but he, the funny thing is he thought, cause it's not Nabandian, you know, people won't think of it as being a foreign name, but it's, it's an Armenian word. <laughs> so it didn't even, nobody even knew what Asbed, you know, is right. or where it comes from. Um, but so, yeah, no, he was, he was not trying to stand out too much. And my mother was an army brat raised in the Midwest, you know? Um, so right. culturally you couldn't tell her from, from anybody else, but their philosophy of life was very different. So, so you go to high school in DC area 
mm-hmm. and you you and you do really well in high school because you're motivated and your your parents are encouraging education and you're a smart guy. Well, my parents were smart, <laughs> so I did. I'm not, I'm not so sure about myself, but yeah, they made sure I did well in high school. Um, yeah, I did. I did well. I I I, I did, but I, you know, I respected my father's idea that education is the way forward. And uh, and and I'm trying not to be cynical about the, the the MacArthur Genius Grant guy telling me, yeah, my parents were smart, but not so much me. I'm like, I'm trying yeah, not to be cynical about that, it, but it's a collective. You know, as much as anybody else, that that's a collective recognition that is that's kind of forced into a uh, 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 individual hole, a collective peg that's forced into an individual hole. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's not it's not a good. Fit, no, I hear but, yeah. I hear you on that. All right. So yeah. so so so, when, when, by the time high school's over, because because at at some point, like if I fast forward to now, where you are. You, and 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 sounds like before your son was born, you and your wife both like from early on, you guys were deeply embedded in a, a fairly idealistic crusade for a better world. Okay, so so when you graduate high school, are you already embarked on that journey, or does something happen to you? No, no, I was um, I was you know not. Not not overtly political, right? At that time, I went to right. college, and my my idea. I, mean, I went to where'd you go? Brown to Brown University. Oh yeah, that's which right. Was, that's right. I went. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, which, as you know, was sort of a, a idealistic place with the new curriculum and all this stuff. Um, but still, within that idealistic place, what I went for was a, a bachelor of science in, in neuroscience. And um, I mean, I no wonder we didn't take with, any classes together. <laughs> well, I did semiotics and art history and all this other stuff. <laughs> I mean, I, I did a film. I, I had some friends of mine and I got together and did a, a, a film. We raised ten thousand dollars and we and we filmed down in downtown Providence, and it was a, a wild, wild piece of of art. Um, but uh, so I, I dabbled in things non science, but uh, but neuroscience was my it was where I was headed. You know, that's and that's where I was planning on doing but i ended up going to haiti after college and and but you, uh, did you meet your wife at brown? did mm-hmm. you meet your wife at brown yes yes we met there okay so when the at two of you right at the, where was the party i'm curious <laughs> the party was on fair street yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and your fair and interestingly it was one of those second story little houses that people lived in you know apartments people lived in and it was a, a guy who became an actor who was on the first couple seasons of The Wire as the coroner. Um, his name is oh, wow. escaping me at the moment, but he's a tall guy. He was, he was a, if you watch The, the Wire in the first couple of seasons. I did. I love that show. Yeah. 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 Wow. Anyway, okay. That's what we met at his place and uh, <laughs> at, a, at a party and, uh, and then pretty much hit it off right from. Was from she political at that point? Not overtly either i mean we both shared the same sympathies you know like we didn't hate other people <laughs> right you were, <laughs> we thought, yeah you were, you were brown yeah. you were generally liberal 
Right. You know? We're decent human beings. Um, but uh, right. do you, are you generally liberal waiting to get a job in finance where you know, <laughs> but, yeah, not yeah. quite that. Every, but everybody, yes, exactly. No, but everybody at Brown was so liberal. And then like until they then until then se- second exactly. semester of senior year. And then they were like, I think I can get a job with Chase. No, you, you know? look at it like, wait, you're in a hedge fund? You started a hedge fund? What? I know. <laughs> you know? I know. I know. No. no um, it's true. Yeah, that was it's true. So, no, so, she was she was a creative writer though. That, that's what okay. she, she, her degree was in history, but she was an amazing creative writer. And, and, you know, Brown had a really good creative writing, right. You know, department and she was incredible at that. And so the two of you talent. fall in love, you fall in love, you're college students, you graduate from college and like, what's, how do you get to Haiti? Well, she graduated a year before me. Right? Okay. And so we... When she graduated, we drove across the country in a, in a 1972 Cadillac Coupe de Ville. Last year with Finns, <laughs> I believe. Um, and some remarkable stories from that trip. We landed in Berkeley because I needed to, to do an additional course in physics at Stanford. And I worked at Berkeley in the neuroscience labs. And she just kind of hung out with some friends in San Francisco for the summer. Um, and then I came back to Brown. She came back eventually later that, that my senior year. And she applied to go to um, Burkina Faso, West Africa, in the Peace Corps. And I didn't know exactly where I was going after school. I applied Mm -hmm. with a friend for a Fulbright to go work with a neuroscience uh, professor who, who, who focused in early childhood development in Edinburgh, which sounded, and it was the first time that they were doing dual Fulbrights and stuff. So it was a cool idea. We thought it was gonna be great, um, and it didn't work Did, out. Didn't get it. Thank goodness. No. Um, I mean, it would have been great, probably, had I gotten it. But I would be a whole different person thirty years later right. than than I was now, than I am now. Um, and so I was looking at doing something, and she was going to West Africa. I figured that sounds kind of cool as a way to you know, spend a little time while I figure out what it is I'm going to do next. Um, and so there was a Haitian, it was called the, uh, what was it? The Providence Haitian Project or something like that um, in Providence with the Catholic Church there. And uh, they needed people to volunteer. And so I went down there with that. But then, and that that put me in an orphanage in Port-au-Prince or, or Petionville, which is outside of Port-au-Prince, um, for the first six months which was a great place to learn Creole from kids who are the best teachers in the world. <laughs> they have infinite patience and think you're funny when you're stupid. <laughs> so that's, that's really no, no, helpful no. when you're learning a new language from scratch. Um, it's fine. And then after that, I, don't I, know went, if you know, I went somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know this, but like, you know, cause like we keep finding out like, Oh, you went to Brown. Oh, I went to Brown. Oh, you knew this guy. Oh, <laughs> I know that guy. Like, I don't know if you know that, like I have a pretty tight connection with a bunch of people in Haiti. Um, really? and I've spent some, spent some time in Haiti myself. And one what, of the things what was, were you there or do you go I've, often? I've been back and forth, you know, four or five times. I haven't been mm-hmm. in 10 years now. Um, okay. because, because that stuff was mostly a part of my Christian life. And although uh-huh. the people I worked yeah, yeah. with now, yeah. they're all fairly secular as well. Um, because I don't have my connections in the Christian community anymore, I can't raise money 
for them like I used to. So it's not worth it for them to bring me down the way they used to. <laughs> um, and I don't mean that in a negative no, way. I just you're mean you're no longer valuable to them. No, I'm no, yeah, I'm no, no longer valuable. And, 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 you know, as an American, like you've got to, if you're not adding value, like, you know, yeah. you should get what out. You, doing? you shouldn't be there. What are you doing? Uh, no, yeah. yeah. No, I, I went down with a sort of, it was a Catholic thing. So it wasn't the evangelical or whatever, but it was still, you know, a Catholic classic. But when, when they put you yeah. out in Petionville, um, uh-huh. were you out there alone? Like, were you like the lone American learning Haiti from the kids because there was no, or were you like with a team or a group? In the orphanage, I was alone. But there was a yes. group of four or five volunteers that, that liked to hang out. But I was that kind of you jerk. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't right. want to hang out with the Ameri- right. the other Americans. I wanted to learn. And so, you know, I, I learned Creole really quickly. And in six months, I was translating for ABC News when Duvalier fell, which was an astounding and terrifying and remarkable experience. Um, but then after that, I ended up working with a peasant movement. Um, the MPP, the Peasant Movement of Papai, which is a place in the central plateau of, of Haiti. Um, it's a national peasant movement and that had this incredible popular education-based approach to organizing and that created these small groups by the hundreds in communities, peasant communities across the country. Reflection all, circles? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like yeah, 12 yeah. or 15 people... Yeah, right. and and they'd use drawings and theater and that sort of thing yeah. to do popular education about that, you know, for people to develop a critical awareness, a sort of asking why and understanding why things are as they are, you know, and which f- in overcoming. Haiti, which in Haiti is a very difficult it, thing to do because the, exactly. the form of education there is so rote memory, slap you on the back of the wrist if you get it wrong, that people are it's not, they don't that. grow up in school learning to think critically or think for themselves at all. It's just like, how do I just say what you want me to say? There's exactly that in school. And if you don't go to school, which 90% of, you know, of patients right. don't or whatever, and especially in the countryside, there's the, there's the popular school, right? There's what you learn from people. And, and that's in Haiti. I don't know how much you learn the language, but that's really captured and conveyed in Proverbs, Right, Haitian Creole mm-hmm. is a language that is incredibly rich in imagery and metaphor and proverbs, and um, part of which I, uh, you know, people describe as being due to yeah. the fact that it was developed in slavery, and it was due, it was developed as a sort of code language, you know, against the French. Um, that would allow people to speak in a way that the French wouldn't understand, even though it's ninety percent French vocabulary. And so, you know, to this day, it's this remarkably dense language mainly through the use of proverbs and proverbs you know traditional ones in haiti are like all five fingers aren't the same length which means you weren't born to be the long finger you might have been born to be the small finger so don't be jealous of the long finger right don't question inequality um and and all it's very fa- like all the, those proverbs are very sort of fatalistic. Say fatalistic. Yeah, but yeah, there's a sense in no, which like that's, that's it is what, what it is. Yeah. It is what it is. Yeah, that's 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 what the peasant movement would call it. It's fatalism, and they 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 identify that as this part of Haitian you know peasant culture in Haiti that is counterproductive to change, and uh, and so they take those they take those proverbs they take a proverb and they do a reflection on it you know. Um, 
And so these groups were incredible, though, because they'd also have an economic activity they'd do that kept them together. You know, they'd save money together and do a cooperative or they'd work each other's land together, whatever it might be. And then you have this these hundreds or maybe thousands of groups across the country in all these different places that are all you know, lightly affiliated with this central movement and yet thoroughly sort of local and independent too, you know, and, and, but they're part of this confederation of, of, of organized peasants around the country. And they, and it was just, for me, you know, I got to, I got trained in, in what they call animation, which is, and, you know, it's organizing in Haiti, but it's much more based on the idea of developing consciousness through critical reflection than sort of, Let's get a let's get a light post, and then next thing we'll get a stop light, and next thing we'll get a you know this sort of um, yeah, Farian, yeah. not Farian, um, what's his name from the U.S. Fanon Solalinskian. No, no, no. Oh, Solalinsky. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know the the well. First, you get a you get a material victory, right? <laughs> then from that material victory, you continue building the community. It's the opposite, you know. And and in the Haitian peasant movement, it was like first. You ask yourself questions you might not have asked before about why things are the way they are. And then from there, you develop an analysis about how things might be different. And then from there, you start acting together on the basis of this shared new consciousness about how things should be different, and you work to make them that way. It's a whole different approach. I mean, it's completely, it's it's 180 degree difference. And and that's what I got trained in and had a unique Are experience. you still with the Catholics so, at this point or have you have you wandered off? No, and no. Yeah, I wandered off. Yeah. <laughs> wandered off. Um, and, 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 you know, and the, so, the, actually this peasant movement was somewhat affiliated with that, with the Catholic Church because, you know, uh, yeah, after Duvalier, there was a Catholic Church sponsored, yeah, everything is, but there was a literacy program sponsored on the same, by the Catholic Church based on the same sort of popular education approach, Mission Alpha, if you remember it at all. Um, and it was just a, you know, it was, it was a really, really interesting time in Haiti because so Chevalier, I was there for the first, last six weeks, well, six months. I was there from 85 to 88. So Duvalier fell in, in February 7th of 86. So I was there from the summer of 85, those six months until he fell. And then two and a half years after that, until there was an election that ended in the attempted first democratic election after the 28 years of Duvalier that ended in horrible violence. And at that point I, I left. You things can, were, things just so, sucked. So you, you, know? you went down, your wife's over there, your, your, your girlfriend is over in Africa, mm-hmm. right? And for a year with the Haiti. paper, for two years, for two years with the Peace Corps, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She finished that and movie you, before I did. Yeah. And, and you're in Haiti. And you're corresponding and all that stuff. And, oh, yeah. And we were st- writing letters. You remember that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we were writing oh, letters I, I, to each other. Oh, you guys it must was, have been – you guys must have felt – I, I can't imagine anything more romantic than like writing f- by candlelight in some Haitian yeah. vi- village about the Literally struggles of the people. Yeah. yeah, right. Like, oh, yeah, you know, and, and, and no, I, it sounds very romantic Well, you know, the, 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 sad, the, the saddest thing was that I wrote – a two-part letter about the fall of Duvalier, which was absolutely just, I mean, I almost died a couple of times because there was so much violence involved and there was people getting killed by the army using automatic weapons 10 feet away from crowds. And I was involved in those. So 
it was just a really intense time. I wrote this very intense sort of journal letters, two of them, to her. And uh, only found out later she never got them. They were the only letters she never got, which I assume means they got kind of read at the, you know, in the yeah. Haitian postal system and not allowed to go out. Um, but uh, that was sad because one of the one of the beautiful things about the days when we used to write letters by candlelight is that you used to write letters by candlelight and it was by hand and every word came out of you directly and you had this material thing to hold on to afterwards. <laughs> the sad thing about it is that you can lose those material things pretty easily um, and you yeah, can't no, I, find them by Googling or whatever. You know? I just got a letter the other day from a woman who I knew just after college and we, we weren't dating, but like we wrote a lot of letters back and forth and uh, she found my letters and mm. she packed them all up and sent them to me. It's um, like a time capsule, isn't it? Oh I mean, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Crazy. But yeah. So anyway, that was, that was so, fun and you know, a good way to pass so the there time. You are, okay. So she finishes up in Africa and you stay in Haiti until it just gets too hot and you got to get yeah, out of it there. Just got, and, and look like it had, the process that I was involved in had hit a roadblock that was going to be too much, you know, to overcome. And so, yeah, came back. And also my, my mother was, was, um, in the last stages of Parkinson's. And so I didn't want to have her pass with me being out of the country too. So I came back to be wow. with, with my parents for a little while. Yeah. Wow. But, but, but well, would you say out. Haiti is, the, Haiti is the truck that hit you? And, mm -hmm. change, mm -hmm. and 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 turned you into a person who, who who cared about the struggles of of people. Yes, I couldn't say it better. So yes, I'll say that. <laughs> no, it's it's so perfect. It's exactly. I couldn't. I had no idea what was awaiting me in Haiti, and then lived about three years of of just the most intense experience you could imagine, and uh, came home and processed it. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, it's funny because for me, like, uh, it was it was Camden, New Jersey, um, but it was a similar hmm. thing when I was when I was at, at school, um, and then and then, you know, I, I remember because I had a girlfriend at Brown, and I remember she went off to Paris one summer, and I went to work in a low cost housing project in Philadelphia, <laughs> and when we got back, um, we just had such very different you, you experiences. Were, yeah, you were in different places oh, at that point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, well, it's funny because so, we did this thing with just briefly on that, you know, at about halfway through the three years, because I worked with ABC during the, the fall of Devalier and they paid me a hundred dollars a day plus hotel to risk my <laughs> life. Um, but to me, that was like, what? hundred dollars a day. Are you kidding me? I'm rich. Um, so I had $1,400 because I had worked them for two weeks, um, just burning my pocket, which was enough to get a, uh, flight back and forth to West Africa. So halfway through the three years, I actually jumped across the ocean and we spent several weeks together, most of it in where she was living in, in, in uh, Burkina Faso. Um, and one, we went down to the coast in Ghana and stayed in this little hut on a beach. And one night we said, okay, you go over there. It's a very small hut. I'll go over here. You write down what you think you want to do when you get back to the States, right? And I'm going to write down what I think I want to do when I get back to the States. And then we'll, we'll compare them and see where we are, right? 
And because this is a long time apart from each other, you don't know what's happening. And we wrote down the same thing, you know, which was to stay involved in this sort of work for social change and whatever. And so we figured, okay, we'll stick together over the next however long until we get back together and then we'll we'll see what we can do in the States. But we had that we had the kind of the opposite experience that you and your girlfriend had when she went to Paris and you went where you went. And uh, yeah. you know, our experiences led us to want to do the same thing with our lives. So and and so you know, I mean it's funny because so so so, so okay, so at that point you're you're college graduates, you've had this Peace Corps-ish kind of mind blower. You 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 sitting there in Africa um comparing comparing life plans. Future, future notes. Yeah. Future notes, yeah. <laughs> And so then when you, when you finally, both of you land back in the United States, wh- wh- what do you jump into? Well, we both, we, at the time we both realized when you're working, if we were thinking we we're going to go back overseas, right? Um, Cause it's such a compelling sort of line of work. And there are a lot of people who do good work overseas. Um, so we thought when you do that, you really need to, in order to have some kind of, of, voice that's not just always always the intern sort of thing you need to get a a degree so we both decided to go to johns hopkins um school of advanced international studies in dc so we moved back to dc and found a little place in adams morgan which was very different at that time um than it is today and uh and we went to school at johns hopkins for two years um, I also worked at the Washington office on Haiti, which is an advocacy organization on Capitol Hill. Um, mm-hmm. you know, just cause I couldn't just keep a hand in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't stop doing that and did a couple of consultancy, um, trips back to Haiti, um, over the next couple of years. But so we did that from 88 to, to 91 and, uh, and then 91, we came down to Florida. So interesting, man. You know, you know the difference between you and me is that mm-hmm. when I, I mean, um, among the many, but like when I got <laughs> turned on to all this justice stuff, it was all wrapped up in Christianity. Yeah, no, every, mine was everything, not. everything I did was Christian, and you know, my, in some ways, my understanding of what serving the poor what was was always prescribed by find mm-hmm. the church in Haiti find the church in the inner city serve mm-hmm. the church you know so, and you know looking back so many of the leaders that i worked with were either spiritually weird you know <laughs> because spiritual weirdness carries you far among uneducated people and and mm-hmm. unsophisticated people um and, and then some of them were just downright operators. They were just, yep. they were in it for, yep. you know, like they were in it for that stuff. And, and yet I felt duty bound and, and sort of loyalty bound to support people and to support c- approaches to organizing and approaches to social justice that were very wrapped up in evangel- ev- evangelical stuff. And, and so, you know, in some ways, it's funny because when I first came out of Christianity, a friend of mine from Brown, um, a guy named Jerry White, 
who had worked on the landmine survivors network and you know he'd been mm-hmm. a part of that nobel prize winning stuff yeah he was yeah. working he was working in um in the west bank in israel israel and he was doing kind of all sorts of interesting peacemaking stuff and he sucked me in on that stuff and i that was the first time i had been around people that were fighting for the same kinds of um stuff but that were doing it in a purely secular way and so was when was like, that was oh, that gosh, just like nine years ago oh really okay so so you were in the other period for some time you were in the oh yeah i was i was <laughs> i i mean I came out of college, went to Minneapolis to be an inner city youth worker at the Park Avenue United Methodist Church. And mm-hmm. I spent the next 30 years recruiting young people to come and live and work in inner city neighborhoods, you know, in the context of churches um, mm-hmm. and, and ran around mm-hmm. giving talks about how Jesus called us to care for the poor. But like, it, you know, all of my stuff that I was involved with, I was always kept away from the Peace Corps people or the, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the yeah. secular NGOs. Like right. I never, I never encountered any of those people until I started working with Jerry, you know, and, and then there are all these, you know, and I, I, I mean, it'll freak, you know, it'd be surprising you, but like somebody like you would have freaked me out. Cause I would have been like, <laughs> wait a second, how can you care about this stuff if you're not motivated by the Holy spirit? Like only, cause you know, in, in the kind of Christianity that I was in, if you weren't connected directly to God, you didn't have any goodness in you. Yeah. Your humanity was, you weren't in touch with your humanity. You weren't in touch, you know? And so I would have been, you know, I I would have been like, oh, everybody's nice. But like the people that do the real sacrificing, the people that really put their lives on the line, the people that are out there in, in the central plateau, like in reflection circles, that's, that's, that's the Christians. Yeah. Um, No. Yeah. yeah. I was unburdened by all that. The, yeah, no, um, I mean, I'm deeply, I'm, I'm sort of envious because I feel like you and your wife got to just pursue goodness for goodness sake. Yeah, no, the kind of humanity as humans, you know, just fellow humans wanting to see other fellow humans live better lives, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, it's, I didn't know about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights until after I came back from Haiti. I, I sort of knew, heard about it, but I really got into it once I came back. Um, and funnily, my, my, you know, my mother had always reminded me of Eleanor Roosevelt in some ways, and she played piano as a young child for Eleanor Roosevelt in the White House, which was a connection that maybe, made me, maybe oh, wow. was the reason why I saw the deeper connection. But um, that document, to me sort of crystallized a lot of what I have always kind of thought in a more, in in a more natural or, you know, undefined way. Um, Okay. I'm feeling stupid right now. Did Eleanor Roosevelt have a big hand in writing that? Yeah, she was, it was right after World War II and the UN came together. I mean, literally came together Mm -hmm. for the first time. and created, yeah. And yeah. And one of the first things they did was say, what the hell did we just do? You know, like waking up from being really drunk and not knowing mm-hmm. what you did and realizing that you've destroyed the car and you've done horrible things to the house. You know, it was like, we just saw what 30 million people die in war. And of that six, 7 million people die as civilians through the Holocaust. We had the 
the use of nuclear weapon or atomic weapons, you know, we've got to set some rules for basic human rights that we have. Yeah, and the Armenian As genocide anybody. wasn't that wasn't that far in the rear of Vimir either, was it? Not at all, not at all. And in fact, you know, it's famous that Hitler said, "Well, when they were talking about about the right. final solution, he said, well, look what the Turks did to the Armenians, and nobody stopped them, right?'" So, yeah, yeah it was all part of the twentieth century. First half of the twentieth century was sort of a jazz a period show. for yeah. atrocity. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's just like let's just go crazy and see what we can come up with. And then everybody woke up right after the war and said, we've got to have a new set of rules for this, for, for civilization going forward. Because first of all, we have weapons that are way too powerful, you know, and for people to just use willy nilly. Second of all, we've demonstrated that we are insanely close at any moment to tripping over into the most horrific, nightmarish acts of genocide from people who are considered to be, you know, people with a long history of civilization, you know, so we've got to do something different. And Eleanor Roosevelt was, I believe she was the chair of the, of the, the group that came up with drafted that three years. It drafted the um, universal declaration. Um, And she's very closely associated with it. And rightly so. She was, which by the way, I've, I've still never read. Oh man. I hope that's worth it. No, I mean, I'm, I'm, embar- I'm, just, I mean, I'm, I'm just embarrassed <laughs> to say it. But like, I know that like people, people that will listen to the podcast to be like, that, you know, they're out there going like, oh, you know, Bart and Greg, they're good guys. Like they know all about this universal declaration. I've never <laughs> even, and I'm like, no, no, no. Greg is the good guy. I'm with, I'm with you idiots. I've never read this thing. Nobody ever asked no, me to read it. It's only, you know? it's only life, life put me in intersection with it. That wasn't my, wasn't me finding it. But the, uh, but did it, you encounter it, it, that it at Hopkins? Did you encounter it at Hopkins? Mm, or was it even I think, after that? I think it was. I think it might have been at Hopkins that I learned about it. Um, you know, first, and then we ended up using it in Immokalee in the early years in Immokalee because you could order these little blue books from the UN, little tiny blue yeah. books um, that, that explained and gave all the, the rights. It's like thirty rights, you know. Um, and did and, you use uh, that in kind of like almost like reflection circles down in Immokalee? Yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, so it all makes sense uh, now. You know, and we distributed hundreds of them in the community. And because people, people from Latin America, from the Caribbean tend to think more about or in terms of in a frame of human rights than Americans do, you know, um, it's more, it's more a way, it's more of a, we just, we just are not the U.S. culture. Not really we think more in terms of civil liberties. Yeah, civil liberties, civil rights, you know, that sort of yeah. thing. Um, yeah. But not human rights, not like universal human rights. And everybody in this country is, no matter what, a little suspect of the United Nations because whatever. Um, so it just doesn't, it's not a thing that clicks, but it definitely clicks with people who, you know, came from Guatemala and Mexico and, and Haiti and are in the United States living in conditions that are just a daily trampling of fundamental human rights and so we used it in the beginning of the organizing of the of the ciw and and it's really um i mean if there were a 10 commandments to my spiritual being they might be those 30 rights you know that those those universal rights Um, all right all right so so okay first of all i will post the UN Declaration of Human Rights. A link to them. Yeah, I will put that on the website thing so that if if you're out there feeling ignorant, 
you and I will read them like, and maybe even I will read them aloud and, and post a, 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 a second podcast get you, get you, to demonstrate yourself, that I've read them. Order, order a few little books, man, because the books are beautiful and, and they're pocket sized. You know, the okay. class I'm doing right now in my son's high school, we talked about the history of the, of the declaration. We, you know, discussed everything that happened that led up to it and why it was yeah. necessary. And then every day, every day we start class, we take an article and discuss it at the top of the day. And then we go on to the rest you of the You take one of the, one of the rights you mean? Mm -hmm. One of the, and it one has of the 30, 30 articles, right? Yeah. And, okay. and wow. so we're on article 10 at this point yeah, and, and uh, or 11 at this point. And, um, and it's just a great way to remember that these things exist and that they all make sense together and to discuss each one and why they, why uh, you know, it's, so fun, it's funny because I, I have this in Cincinnati, I'm part of this um, gang that, that it's like a church for people who don't believe in God. Um, mm -hmm. It's called Caravan. And it's, it's just lovely thing, like meet on Sunday mornings, like there's a service, you know, and, and it's, it's mostly post-Christians who miss kind of the majesty and the fellowship yeah. and the, and the ritual know, of, the, yeah. Right. Coming together. And, and sometimes we're like, yeah, you know, we don't really have a scripture. Um, you know, we do a lot of readings, we read poems and, and stuff from Robert Ingersoll, who's my kind of humanist hero. Um, mm -hmm. but like, oh, you know, all of a sudden I'm going like, oh, maybe we should read one of those articles, you know, every week. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. And, and, all right. So and anyway, it's really, that's my homework. Yeah. That's my homework. I'll do that. Okay. All right. And you see that they're not they're not crazy. I mean, they they all make great sense, and and it all starts from the exact same thing that the that the American Revolution started from. Like you could draw. It's not even not even a bridge. It's the same stuff. You know, that people are are born with certain inalienable rights that include whatever. You know, and so it's this it's this idea. It's this promise that. We all have certain rights and nobody can take them away from you arbitrarily. And, uh, and we need to protect them because that's how they remain real. Yeah. And what's funny is like, you know, from a purely secular perspective, you actually have no rights. Um, you know, <laughs> rights are something that we invent mm -hmm. and, and, yeah. and then, and then, and, and then sort of go like, you know what, this is, we, we bespoke these on each other. Like this is like our, our, our sort of social contract. Um, you know, cause like you don't even yeah. have the right to live. Like if you did, you know, <laughs> then, then like a tiger couldn't come up on you the savannah and like kill you. Like, you know, the right. universe doesn't respect no, yeah. your rights, but, you know, nobody. But it is a social, social contract. It's a really good, yeah. good yeah. point because, you know, we talk about this in the class as well. Was it was at Locke. We talked about coming out of the wilderness into the. You know, like this, the move from the world where every individual is out there protecting his or her own right. self to coming together in this sort of clearing. I always think of it as a clearing in the woods where you suddenly find all these people who come out of the woods into the same clearing and they realize that together we can protect ourselves better. We can, we can find food better. We can house ourselves better. We can live happier if we all live together. And of but course, scientifically exchange, speaking, that's not scientifically, I mean, that's a good parable. Scientifically speaking, that's not how it happens. What it actually no, I happens know, but is, it's, yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. But like, it's this beautiful thing where I, I think what it really is, is a bunch of people are traveling around in a pack together. And, and at some point they become conscious and they go like, why does this work? <laughs> and then they're like, oh, you, you know, like this works because we respect these things. Like these are not things we're inventing. These are things where we have invented. 
We're right. simply and, putting a name to them. And there is this exchange though. And that's the, that's the, the contract, the social contract. Right. Right? So you get these goods, you get these good things from being together in that clearing or wherever it is that scientifically yeah. <laughs> happened, yeah. you know, you get the good stuff. But you can't do all the crazy stuff you used to do by yourself out there in the woods either, yeah. you know. So you you got to get rid of some of the things that you, that would be considered individual rights or put some limitations on individual rights in order to enjoy the the, the real goods of living as as a as a group. Yeah, you know, and even devalue and, them in a sense of sort of sort of say like, oh, if somebody exercises that particular individual right to the detriment of the group, we shun them. Like, yeah. like that's immoral. You know, like right. that these moral codes emerge out of, oh, if that doesn't work for the group, it's wrong. Yeah. No, yeah. exactly. And that's, and that's, that is what we do every day. That's the, that's the work of living in a, in a, in a polity, right? Like that's, that's what, what I learned know. in Haiti. That's what I learned more <laughs> in Haiti than anywhere else I've ever been because I would watch bone poor people. Right. Sharing and cooperating in ways that that yep. seemed incredibly sacrificial to me, but I real, you know, like as I watched it, it, it was like this culture of sharing that emerged out of necessity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, there's, you, there's the whole combit thing, which is where people work each other's land, you know, yeah. and they all, it, it makes sense to do, you know, even if it means that today you might not have had to work, but you're going to go work with your neighbor because when you need that extra help, the neighbor will be there for you too. Or watching a you guy know? who's running who's running a little candy stand and there's five candy stands down the street. And 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 if he starts to get too much of the business, people look down on him. And they're like, Yeah, <laughs> you know, you're you 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 know, you know, in, in America, people would be like, Oh, good, you're a competitor. You've you've you're put your big. competition out of business. Yeah. And they're like, No, nah, you can't be putting anyone out of business. Everybody's gotta eat. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so I so so what I'm trying to figure out though is I got you at Hopkins learning about international <laughs> mm-hmm. policy stuff and, you know, kind of the bigger picture of human rights. They're, they're the bigger political context against which human rights are set. Um, but then you, you say like, oh, and then my, and, and then the two of us went down to Immokalee, we went down to Florida. And I'm like, mm-hmm. what, did you get, did, did Florida send you an invitation? Like how yeah, did they, you, you know about that? And that's how Florida works. They, they, they all get together, <laughs> send you an invitation. You look like a good Floridian, which is not a compliment, by the way. But right. you know. Yeah, like, because I mean, now you're doing this interesting work with the workers, but like the workers didn't get together and send you a postcard. How did you know to go to Florida? <laughs> there was, we, we, during our time in, at Hopkins, um, we got involved with, my wife was the first one to get involved with, um, a group called Friends of Farm Workers in Pennsylvania. And so it's a legal services group that provides free legal services to farm workers who are having problems, whether it's housing or employment, or whatever it might be. Um, and so she got involved. My, are, were with these them. migrant workers? Yeah. Mostly? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Mostly in like the, the apple harvest and around Gettysburg and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and so she got exposed to that. And while I was studying in, because she, she started a year after I started so I started, it's a two-year process at Johns Hopkins. She started, well, I started the school. She did that. And, um, and she uh, was kind of blown away by the fact that right here, you know, in the U.S., this is when we were still thinking about going overseas, there are some very marginalized people who live very difficult, exploited lives that don't have effective means to actually 
protect themselves to 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 lead a process of making their lives better you know and so legal services was a was a a sort of a means to make to take some of the edge off the exploitation but it wasn't community led you know it was led by attorneys a lot of them were sort of harvard educated attorneys who decided to, to work for legal services for their careers um which was an interesting contradiction you know um because it was all very top down and uh and so but we got involved in it and it gave us a window to a world that that was remarkably intriguing and we decided that it made sense for us go ahead i'm sorry to interrupt but like if i'm if i'm thinking right like the workers that she was encountering they they didn't have access to the normal american legal system that that a work you know that a, a regular worker might have access to in their community if they were getting mistreated or, or exploited like these people were m- literally b- below that radar well in in some sense i mean in in terms of you know the access to the, to the legal system generally requires resources you know to right. be able to, to pay a lawyer or um to, to get a lawyer and, and figure out where a lawyer might be who would take your case on 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 retainer or whatever um but so part of that access question was solved by the creation of legal services, which was a government funded um, mm-hmm. legal you know, uh, services program for people who didn't have the resources to hire a lawyer. So part of, part of the, the, the structural exclusion of farm workers from the legal system was taken care of by providing um, free legal services. But, and, and you know, for, for almost all workers, whoever they might be in the country, the laws that protect workers apply to them. So when, when you do have access to a lawyer um, and things are not right where you're working, the lawyer can, can take that information and put it into a, a lawsuit or into communication with the employer and change those things. It's a very slow process because it's mediated by the courts. And if, and if the employer doesn't want to change things right off the bat, when you, they get that first, what's called a demand letter, right? If the employer doesn't say, oh, you got me, let's do this. Mm-hmm. Then the employer gets a lawyer and they fight it in court. And when you take a case, like one of the cases we started here in Florida when we first got here, was a massive minimum wage violation case involving more than a thousand workers, right? And, and they were... It was over, you know, well over a million dollars of unpaid wages. It was a huge case. And we, we built the case from the start. We found crew leaders who are the farm supervisors, the farm bosses, who are willing to give us information and smoking gun documents showing that the whole thing was a, was a systematic effort by the company to deny workers minimum wage um, by changing hours, reducing hours so it looked like they made minimum wage when they didn't. Um, and it was across the board and they could show us the, the original documents of the hours records and then the doctored documents. And then, so we had everything we needed and we, and we won the case in court, but by the time the money, which was the unpaid minimum wage actually got to the workers first, it was filtered through a process where the judge decided that what number of hours would be used per day to calculate the, the um, owed wages, right? The unpaid wages. And, mm-hmm. you know, the judge decided eight hours instead of the actual 10 that was a testimony of workers. That cut off a part. Second, it was um, 
at the minimum wage at the time, as opposed to the minimum wage, which had gone up by the time that this case was, was, had been won in court. And third, by the time this case had been won in court, it was 10 years later, 10 years after the first information started coming in about the, the problem. And so people had died in the interim. You know, it was just, it was just the slowest. It was justice delayed. Justice delayed. You know? Yeah, I was just going to say yeah. justice delayed. Yeah, so it's what it is. Denied. And yeah. the legal system is not built for speedy justice for, for poor people. That's a, that's a fact. So, you know, we learned about that through our exposure up there. And then there was an opportunity to come work in Florida with legal services. Um, and though we knew it was not what we wanted it to do, we knew it would also put us in a place where we're talking with the community about the problems they face as a community. Because we're talking to them about issues that we could help them with through legal services. But we didn't have to solely address those issues through legal services. We could also see if there were community members in the, in the farm worker community of Immokalee who were interested in, in building a process that they controlled of analysis and reflection and action and analysis and reflection and action, building a base of people who were determined in the community to change the system themselves. So that's what we did. So you showed up there, you were what, 25 years old? 91, years old. 63, 28, something like that. So, so you yeah. guys show up there, you're 28 years old, and you're still there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> our, our, it's interesting people are like and we're, and we're working out of we're actually interesting and working out of the same physical office that we landed in when we first got there now <laughs> the office the office is now the coalition of immokalee workers community center as opposed to legal services office and the job we have been doing over these past nearly 30 years um has changed every five years dramatically you know yeah. Um, so it doesn't feel like we're doing the same thing and we're not doing no, the same no, thing. But, we're doing but you're embedded it, but we're there embedded in, in that, that same place. place. Yeah. It's funny. And I'm it's reading a beautiful uh, place to be embedded right now. I'm rereading, um, John Steinbeck's, uh, East of Eden. Mm -hmm. Have you ever read any Steinbeck? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, I would think you would have read Grapes of Wrath at the very least. Yes, indeed. Um, but this East of great. Eden book, it's, it's a lot of it is about there's there's a subtext that I missed the first time because I was, you know, again, like I, I'm now, I was a young Christian when I read it the first time. I'm an old humanist reading it the second time or, you know, older humanist reading it the second <laughs> I was going to say, don't, don't quite say old quite yet, but yes, go ahead. But, but I feel old, you know, sometimes. <laughs> and, 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 and my hero in the book now is this, I'm sure he was there, obviously, but I didn't notice him, is this older guy, um, who's married to a very wonderful Christian woman who does everything by the book. And he's just a, a philosopher and a poet. He doesn't believe any of the stuff. And, um, but at one point as he's getting ready to die, he and his wife are going to visit their children and he knows he's leaving his farm and he's never coming back. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't care because to her, the farm was just, you know, a way station on her way to her ultimate destiny. But he's a person right. who believes that this life is is that is is all he has, and he's he loves this land even though it's given him nothing but trouble, um, mm -hmm. because he's spent his life there and he he right. walks That's every he, was. he yeah. knows every stone he 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 has mm -hmm. a, a story at every corner, um, 
And I, you know, I, I have felt that way about neighborhoods that I've poured myself into for 10 years, but I never had the, I've never been anywhere as long as you've been there. I can't even imagine the relationship you must have with just that, that place and those people. But, the, but the, yeah, no, it's, it's, I've never been anywhere as long as I've been here either. <laughs> we right, intended right. to be here, you know, for about five years and, and, uh, you know, and see what happens after that sort of thing. Um, but it has been such a remarkable process of, of this community first really studying itself, you know, together in these little groups and little borrowed place at the Catholic church, because we didn't have a, you know, an office or anything like that, um, coming together and just discussing what it means to be a farm worker and why it means what it means to be a farm worker and what their vision would be of a more humane, more modern farm worker existence. Right. And, and then starting to, to build a plan around how to try to realize that vision and then spending almost 10 years around a plan that, that was destined not to get there, you know, which was, the decade of of the 90s where we were part of a process in the community where they, they they you know they looked at they looked inside the farm itself they didn't look beyond the farm and they looked at who was who was committing abuses against workers inside the farm who had power inside the farm and how could that change and and our drawings the drawings we would use to actually prompt reflection and discussion in the community were based were based completely on the on the environment the world inside the farm so there were three characters for example a worker bent over picking a farm boss sitting on the worker's back and on the shoulders of that farm boss a uh, farm owner right and the farm owner would be dropping a bill into the hand of the of the farm boss and the farm boss would be dropping a coin into the hand of the farm worker and they're all on his back. And, you know, that was how we sort of saw the world. And if that's how you see the world, then the answer is stand up and they will come down. And then when they're down, we'll be able to have a conversation about how we want things to be on a more equal basis. That was the, the analysis based on that understanding of the world and the plan of action. And so we had community strikes that, that you know, were thousands of people taking over the central parking lot in town to where people get picked up in the morning to go work in these school buses and occupying that parking lot, sort of our, we thought of it as our Tiananmen Square, you know, moment. And uh, we had three of those strikes that six members of the, of the CIW did a, a, a 30 day hunger strike. And the only demand of the hunger strike was dialogue with the growers to be able to talk about the, the different vision that the community had for a more fair, food system and for and farm labor system you thought you could and show you show you could reason with these folks yeah and 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 we tried you know and and what was interesting out of that 30-day hunger strike when president carter got involved and, and asked the workers in the end to to stop and let others try to help change things um i mean 30 days is a long time to do a hunger strike um a grower who was not unsympathetic to us, told us he had a conversation with another grower 
And he asked, why in the world will you not just agree to sit at the table? All they're asking for was dialogue. And the grower said, I'll put it to you this way. The tractor doesn't tell the farmer how to run the farm. Point blank. Mm. Right? And, and, you know, that whole idea, which was almost like a haiku of a beautiful piece of poetry, frankly, that, that when it was shared with us, we immediately shared it with the community and, and, and discussed that. You know, it's like you can discuss a drawing, you can discuss poetry. And what that farmer said was, in a very sick way, poetic. And, and what he was saying, obviously, is that you don't talk with a tractor. You talk with other human beings, but we don't see the farm workers as human beings, and they have no way or right or need to tell us how to run the farm. And, and so if that's the case, you know, and if they're protected in a lot of ways that, that farmers are protected in the United States against farm workers building power, then it was going to be almost impossible to knock down that wall and get to the table. You know, and that's after the, those 10 years is when we started to actually look beyond the, the farm gate itself and to the broader system of the food industry from the bottom to the top, to the consumers at the top. And, and, and saw that there were other powers greater than the growers that the growers had to answer to. And that, that was the corporations that buy that's their the food. Big light. Yeah. Right, that's the big yeah. light bulb that goes on. You go like, yeah, we, we, we're, we're acting as though this farm is a closed system. And we need to, yeah, and, exactly. And, 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 yeah, and we need, to, we need to figure out how to get the people that are being hurtful on this farm to listen to us. Mm-hmm. And, and then you realize like, actually, it's almost like triangulating. Like, they mm-hmm. won't listen to us, but, but the consumers might listen to us. And the farmers will, and, and the farm, far, the growers will have to listen to the consumers. Well, the consum- we could, who the growers have to listen to is the corporations that buy their food, right? Right. But the corporations, normally, we think of them as the end of the food chain, right? Like, we don't, like, there's no more power past that. But in fact, you know, because the reason is that, and for that is because normally, and, and by the way, consumers wait, don't act. Uh-huh. Stop. Before, before we start talking yeah. about the consumers, the corporations that we thought were the end game, the highest power, uh-huh. which corporations yeah. were you – when you're there in Florida with those workers, which were the corporations you're like, these are the people that are, are, the, are the big power here because mm-hmm. they're the ones that, the ones buy that are buying all the tomatoes that people, that people pick in, in Mockley and in Florida. Uh, all the fast food corporations, the grocery stores, the, the food service corporations, all those companies. So every okay. all the major fast food chains, um, all the major groceries. Yeah, Kroger, Kroger everybody. Like, okay, big, big, big grocery stores, big food chains. Big grocery stores, and 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 the reason that they aren't just passive points along a chain, but in fact actively involved in the exploitation in the fields is important too, because over the past several decades, when we start, when we first launched this this campaign in two thousand one those companies had come to exist in a way that they had never existed before. I mean, you're young enough, old enough to remember when we were young, that Walmart didn't exist. Right. Where you grew up, there was no Walmart, you know, and that was 50 years ago, right? No, there was a so, regional grocery store chain, you know, there exactly. was a re, re, and there were regional exactly. department stores. And there were barely McDonald's or right. any of those things. You know, it was Bob's Big Boy where I was and some, you know, other regional smaller things. They just weren't Um, nearly as big of players. 
they were not even in existence. You know, or if they were, they were, you know, actually Walmart is just about as old as I am and you are. And it started its first store in Bentonville about just over 50 years ago, you know? Right. So it was one store in Bentonville and mm -hmm. now it's what it is, right? So when you do that in a marketplace, what you're able to do is to amass and leverage the purchasing power of all those stores. And then you become this impossible to resist negotiating force in the food industry where you can demand lower and lower prices just to get your business, right? And so if a farmer who's negotiating against a buyer like Walmart and his orders of magnitude smaller than that, than that buyer has no power to, to negotiate price. And at the same time, all the other inputs the buyer needs are also from companies that are orders of magnitude bigger than the buyer. So you have John Deere and Bank of America. And, you know, so you have all these other things that provide the other inputs for agriculture, Exxon, you know, that provides the diesel, you know, that they can't negotiate really either with. So they're just, just like, here's how much you're going to, here's how much you're going to pay for gas. Here's how much you're going to pay for a tractor. Mm -hmm. Here's how much I'm going to mm -hmm. pay you for the tomatoes. You, you work it out. You, like figure, you figure out how you're going to make any make kind of profit, profit whatsoever. Right. Now, who is the one input that a farmer has to think about and work with that the farmer is, the, is orders of magnitude bigger than? economically the farmer the grower yeah, yeah, yeah the worker the worker and that's why that 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 grower that farmer had been able to keep piece rates what you pay per, for a 32 pound bucket of tomatoes every time you pick one absolutely fixed for 30 years because when you keep that price for 30 years at 40 cents per bucket every year it loses value and every year that lost value becomes a little bit of a margin for the right. grower to stay alive so, so, so in the is, same way, in, right? In the same way that Walmart could say to the farmer, "Hey, look, this is the price I'm going to give you, and if you don't, if you don't sell to me at this price, I'll just go down the road and find another farmer that will sell to me at this price, and you won't exactly sell to anyone." What the farmer, that's what the, the farmer, farmer says to the worker. worker. Listen, mm -hmm. you, this is the price I'm going to pay you to pick this, pick a bushel, and if you won't pick for this bushel, I'll just walk down the road and find another guy that will. That's exactly right. That's exactly the deal. That's how negotiations work. You know, negotiations are about power. And if there's a great imbalance of power, then the, the one at the bottom of that imbalance is going to not, not come out well. Um, so in any event, that connected those corporations to the, to, the, to the poverty and abuse at the bottom of the supply chain in a, in a meaningful way, a responsible way, not just a factual one, right? It wasn't just that they buy the tomatoes so, and they have power, so we should go there. But the way they buy the tomatoes actually drives farm worker poverty and abuse, and we need to hold them accountable and make them be part of the solution. And so when we address that new theory of change to, uh, to consumers, that's when consumers become the top of the, of the food chain. Because individually, which is how we usually act as consumers, we have no power, almost no power, right? We can't tell, I can't write to Walmart and say, hey, Walmart, you should do this differently. And Walmart will be like, you know what? We hear you, we'll do that. But when you act concertedly, when consumers act together and then in common cause with farm workers, they can make their power heard because they do concertedly have power over the corporations. That's what boycotts are. Right. And so what we did was organize that common cause with consumers and turned it into pressure on corporations 
to sign agreements that, they, that said two simple things. They will pay a small premium to help improve the incomes that their low prices have helped drive lower and lower over the years. So that small premium goes to help improve farmer incomes. And then the second was they'll only buy from growers who are meeting certain basic human rights standards and that the coalition will be the determiner of whether or not a grower is in compliance with those standards. Now, when we got enough of those agreements, which we ended up doing around 2010, 2011, that's when the program was able to start and growers agreed to join. And since that time, when you're able to leverage the purchasing power of the buyers to enforce the human rights of the workers, the workplace has been radically transformed in farms that are participating in the, in the fair food program. So in a sense, the second part of it, I understand to think a little bit better than the first, that if the workers coalition has to put its stamp of approval on a farmer before he can sell his stuff or mm -hmm. her stuff to the corporation, because the corporation says, if I don't see that stamp of approval, I won't buy from you. Right. If you're not a then participating in a sense, grower in the program. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, the, he can't look at his workers like a tractor anymore. He's like, I... Mm -hmm. I I have to get that tractor to like me. Um, to condition sales on compliance with human rights. Yeah. Okay. So that that part of it I understand. The the part of it about the pricing, I don't understand. The premium, because in a sense, like to me, it sounds like what you're saying is is that the corporation agrees we're gonna pay more for our tomatoes. Like like there's no way this worker can give this farmer can give his workers better wages unless we pay more money for our tomatoes. Actually, what they do is they pay a premium, and it's not in the price itself. It's a separate premium that they pay to the grower for the grower to distribute to the workers. That it's a penny why per is that pound. better that than just the, raising the? Why is that better than raising the prices? Or is it because better? prices prices change? The the market is extremely, you know, volatile for products like tomatoes. Okay. Right. Um, so the, that's going to move as it moves. And if you set, if you say, well, today it's a 10 bucks a box, 25 pound box. So at 11, you know, at $10 and 25 cents for that box, that'll be the price going forward. Well, tomorrow it's at $15. So you have this constant movement, uh, moving target that you can't get. But if you can say for every pound of tomatoes you buy, you, there's a penny flowing in a separate, but, but accounted for channel on the same invoice. That is the fair food program bonus fair food program premium that is given to workers as a fair food program bonus as a separate item on their paycheck, right? So it's a separate item on the invoice and through the growers, it becomes a separate item on the paycheck. And then that money is divided with among the workers according to how much they picked, right? And then that gives workers a raise in every paycheck based on the sales to the participating growers. And so, so the it's price a, it's is, a very, price is still uh -huh. like the price is still fluctuating. The, the price is still doing what it does, but there's money set aside to go to grow to workers to help improve right, the, so their, their paycheck. So does some part of their paycheck fluctuate and then this premium doesn't fluctuate? No. No, no. The premium the, the paycheck is based on how much they, they, they work, right? It's either okay. based on number of hours if they're paid by the hours or it's based on the number of buckets if they're paid by the piece. That just I mean it fluctuates in the sense of how much they worked. But it doesn't fluctuate according to market price or anything like that. The, it doesn't. The, what, 
No, no, no. That that fluctuates for the grower, right? But the workers are paid by by how much they work. And but who then, determines that price? Who determines the wage of a worker? That is something that has been determined forever between workers and employers, right? So if it's you know minimum wage is the requirement by law, right? Now that mm-hmm. minimum wage is seven dollars and, and something in Florida, it's higher due to a change that's happening today, which is the the increasing use of of H two workers, guest workers, in response mm-hmm. to the insecurity around immigration that's happening these past couple of years, which complicates things, but it actually raises the minimum wage uh, effectively mm-hmm. on a lot of farms. Um, and the bucket price, which is that thing we talked about that had stayed stagnant for thirty years, after the program, and we did not we did not dictate a bucket price. We that's not part of what the program does. But for the first time in thirty years, it went from forty cents to 50 cents to 60 cents and it's up around 65 to 70 cents per bucket now which seems to be a response to the humanization of the of the of the farm labor market in the program when employers finally started to see that workers are in fact not tractors they're humans and when you have a happier workforce you have a more productive workforce and so the idea was the idea emerged after the first year or two of the program, of, of competition among the growers to become the employer of choice um, for workers, to be the place that workers really want to work. Once they started improving conditions, yeah, it sounds they, like saw, they saw the response. Kind of a de facto profit sharing program. It's, a, like, it's, just a, it's a very interesting human response to what happens when you humanize the other. You know, when you, when you actually see the other person as a human, then you start to realize, well, they will respond to the same things I do. If I get treated more fairly, if I get a better wage, I'll work more productively. And so that suddenly became a new way of relating to workers. Um, and, and that bucket price has gone up significantly since the start of the program. So the, but, we, but that's not dictated by the program. What, you, what, what happens, there's, we're really in the weeds on this, but you know, there's a, the definition of a full bucket if you're getting paid by the bucket, they used to actually make people by force overfill the bucket. So if you can imagine the sort of snow cone look yeah, to a yeah. picking bucket full of tomatoes, that overfilled bucket, if you pick 10 of those, you've just picked an 11th bucket for free, if that makes sense. Yeah. And yeah. so what we did do- And, and if you don't, do, and, if, and, and again, it was like, if you don't do that, yeah, I'll find somebody who will. Yeah, and a lot of times the bucket would come back at you with force from the top of a truck and, and hit you in the face. Or, you know, there was a lot of violence actually involved in disputes over what constituted a full bucket before the program, mm. you know, and real violence um, in the field. So that was an important thing to workers who defined the code of conduct. And what they said was the, our vision of a more fair farm labor world in agriculture is that we have a single visual definition of a full bucket where no tomato can be fully above the rim. There'll be a little bit above the rim, but no tomato can be fully above the rim. When you, when you create that single accepted, defined visual definition of a full bucket, that whole problem goes away and people get paid for every pound of tomatoes they pick. So mm-hmm. that created like a 10% pay raise right there. You know? All right, great, um, great. Mm-hmm. One thing I'm curious about, because when I first 
you know, it's my buddy, Rich, who, by the way, remember when I told you I worked with my friend, Jerry in the Middle East, mm-hmm. like my, my brown buddy, mm-hmm. Jerry, that's how I got to know Rich was working on those projects. And, um, and he was, he was involved in all that stuff that I was, I was, I was doing in Israel and Palestine. When, when, when I, when he started telling me about you, one of the things that he emphasized was that the other byproduct of this, or maybe not a byproduct, but the other thing that workers envisioned when they envisioned a better working situation had to do with a mm-hmm. lot of sexual violence that was happening. Absolutely. Yeah. Was the sexual violence, was that, was that, I, I don't know what the word is, like, was that central? Like, was that a, a part of the workplace or was that something that just, you know, they're, they're sort of ancillary or, or it, it didn't have anything to do with the economic situation or the corporations or anything. It just, it just happened to be happening because there were a lot of mean farmers. Hmm. I think That's I know the answer, question. but, but yeah, I'm curious. No, it, it was, a, it was a, essentially it was a product of the power imbalance between farm workers and their employers. That's what it was, right? So whenever there is a massive power imbalance between two people, bad things will happen because people tend to take advantage of other people when they have power over them. People don't tend to do good stuff when they have when they have power over someone else, when they have sort of an absolute imbalance of power over somebody else. And when you put them in the fields and their people's jobs and families are dependent upon you employing them in the fields, and there's nothing they can do about that, then sexual assault, sexual harassment will follow. And that's exactly what happened. But in terms of how much, what, what part of the life of a farm worker it was, or in particular female workers, you know, women talk about it as they call it, it, it was their daily bread before the program. It was the sort of thing that they faced on a daily basis. You know, whether it was incredibly inappropriate comments and and just a constant environment of, of harshness or whether it was somebody physically assaulting them or taking people to a corner of a field in a truck and and assaulting them you know those things happened on a regular basis now what the program does broadly is that it addresses the question of at the at the root of all those abuses that abuse the you know modern day slavery, violence, wage theft, all those things. It addresses the imbalance of power by harnessing the purchasing power of the buyers. You give workers in that balance between workers and employers a power they never had before. And so every time, again, you need that check mark of approval from me as a worker. Exactly, exactly. Every time that there's a there's if there's a crew leader who has for years touched women inappropriately in the fields. There was nothing a worker could do about that in the past because the worker had to consider whether she could afford to complain and most likely lose her job or whether it was just better to keep her job and her ability to put food on the table and and swallow her dignity at work. And 99 out of 100 times in the past, the answer was keep my job and swallow my dignity. And that's why, you know, because there was no power to protect yourself, you would lose your job. Now, in, in, the, in the program, if someone were like that, if there were a farm boss who was a serial sexual harasser or sexual 
assault person committing sexual assault on a serial basis. Now the, the question goes to the farm. The question of can I afford to do something or not goes to the farm because the worker can now make a complaint and be protected, absolutely protected by the power of the program against being retaliated against, right? She or he who makes a complaint about sexual harassment or sexual assault will not lose their job. Instead, the farm has to think, can I afford to hold on to this coup leader who I've worked with for 20 years and I really like, and he always brings me workers and we always have our harvests on time and lose the business of 14 of the biggest corporations in the food industry? Or would it be better for me to cut this guy loose and keep that business? And 99 out of 100 times, the decision now is made to cut the person loose because that's what you have to do to stay in the program. That's the corrective action plan you have to do is the, the, if someone is found you know, to have sexually assaulted a worker, that person is fired and cannot return to the program for a minimum of two years and has to go through education and everything else in order to, to be able to do that. That is what is decided. The farms decide to stay in the program, maintain the ability to sell to those buyers and get rid of the, of the, the bad actor. And so it's been a, it's been a remarkable process over, so, over the so, past several years. So I have, you know, and I'm, I'm aware that like I'm, I'm taking hours of your time. And so I'm going to wrap this up um, with two questions. First of all, I know, I know cause we've talked offline that you're like that there's at least one corporation or two corporations that haven't gotten on with the program yet. Mm-hmm. The big, big Sorry. buyers. Kroger's one of them, right? Kroger is one. Uh-huh. And there's and somebody Wendy's in New York. Is, Who are you going to talk yeah. to in New York? Wendy's? Well, this this March 10th through 12th, we're going to be in New York on a three-day march. And we're going to be going to actually to Wendy's, and but to also the companies behind Wendy's because Wendy's is is uh, held by a number of, the, well, it's held by shareholders like any public company, right? But those right. shares are not just individual, you know, grandmothers and, and right. who have five shares in Wendy's. There's a company called Trian Partners, which owns the largest block of shares. And, you know, Nelson Peltz, who's the head of and founder of this hedge fund called Trian <laughs> Partners. Yes, I know Nelson Peltz. The, oh, you do? Yeah, I know who that he's, is. I mean, no, we're not buddies. Oh, but. He, okay, yeah, yeah. He um, he's chairman of Wendy's board, and his son is on the board, and his vice president of Trion is on, is vice president of the board. So they're on, they're in that decision making role in Wendy's because right. they're the biggest shareholder. But there are also other massive companies, you know, Wells Fargo and and Goldman Sachs and and others, who all own important shares in Wendy's. And what we're telling them with this march because we're going to go to their offices as well not just Wendy's and not just Trina. Right. We're going to say when you invest money in a company that is the last company in the fast food industry to join this award-winning program and has been profiting from not being part of the program for years, which means being profiting from farmer for poverty and abuse for years, you too are responsible for that poverty and abuse. And what's interesting is at the same moment that we're taking that message to them, Wall Street is trying with some success to tell the world that they realize they have to be more responsible for the sorts of issues and concerns that, that 
their customers that the U.S. Oh yeah, like that 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 big letter they sent out, like we're going to be good now. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's this whole thing, ESG, like environment, um, social, and governing issues. uh, That right. Now they're saying that they that those issues are hugely important to us when we make an investment. We want to make sure that the impact of the companies in which we invest our money is positive, you know, both on for the for people and for the planet, right? And thing is, <laughs> like, like the promise at the start of this country, right? All men are created equal. Well, it's a promise. In reality, the gap between the two is massive. It's 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 Grand Canyon massive, and as long as there's a gap between promise and reality. There will be energy and force for change, and that is what we are 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 pushing in March. So is that that gap be closed, right? They and so you're saying to Nelson, you're saying to Nelson and the investors in Wendy's, but also you're saying to Wendy's directly, Absolutely. if you don't participate in this program, we're going to marshal our relationships with consumers, and we're going to go like we're not going to buy Wendy's burgers. Absolutely, there, there's a boycott. I think it's two years old now of Wendy's. And it's growing. Um, and there were just 30 religious leaders from New York who released a letter on our website this morning. We released a letter supporting uh, campaign and calling and supporting a resolution by the New York City Council calling on Wendy's to join the fair food program. So New York City, you know, from the city council to the religious leaders in New York to um, Which I hope includes some humanists. I hope includes some humanists, like the Ethical well, Society or somebody. You don't have to be. You don't only have to be from New York. You can probably sign the letter. All right, all right. Um, no, the humanist chaplain at will. the University of Cincinnati will sign that letter. Will sign that letter. Excellent. Um, no, that that you know that is is happening. That's growing. There's a momentum right. in New York right. itself, which is where the financial capital of the world is, and where those people need to start paying attention and start start living the words that they're speaking, you know, and that's what we right. hope to do. And and that's, again, like, you know, if whether it's the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or the Humanist Manifesto or the three values of the Humanize Me podcast, which are loving relationships, making things better for other people and cultivating wonder and, and, and gratitude, like the, mm-hmm. all those values say, hey, if you really believe those values, you're going to boycott Wendy's until they get right. And you're Absolutely. going to let them know that that's what you're doing, and so uh, yep. like this is a this is a long way to get to that um, <laughs> action step, yeah. that, that, that exactly. little action yes. step yes. there. Um, but but that's the way we do, right? That that's from the, right. the Haitian peasant movement. You start with consciousness. You talk, and on that basis of that com- that consciousness, you build right, a right. and that makes change. All right, brother. That is our Listen, that is our I, equation. I, I, I know I have to let you go. Um, you know, one of the things, I, like someday, I'll, when when I talk to you again, I'm going to go like, "Who pays your salary?" Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll talk. Because I'm curious. Basically, foundations, churches, and people. But yes, we can talk. Okay, more about so that. there is there's a nonprofit organization that sort of like you've amassed to help you organize this work. That's the Coalition of Immaculate Workers. Yeah, man. All right, all your good stuff <laughs> will be on my website. I will do a lovely Great. introduction where I'll give some backstory and stuff. I can't thank you enough for talking with me, man. It's great talking to you. You are obviously very good at podcasts. I like that. Oh, sure. I really enjoy the process. Seriously. Hey, well, listen, you, you I love talking to you. And, and, and I'll let you know when this is going up so that you can let anyone you think might want to hear it, hear about it. Okay. And, uh, and I'll get it up. I'll get it up well in time so that maybe we can steer some humanists towards New York yeah. on, 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 in March. Okay. 
I'll, I'll help carry the flag. Go yep. get him, brother. <laughs> Very, all right, all listen, right. we'll Thank talk you, soon. All right, all right, yep. love. Bye-bye. All right, are you exhausted or are you energized? Because by the end of that conversation, I was ready to fly to New York myself. I can't because I, I got a previous thing I got to do in California. I, I actually thought about it. But I'm telling you, it would be so great if some humanists showed up and marched with these guys. Because he's a humanist. Greg's a humanist. His wife's a humanist. These are our people, man. And they are doing our work. Not yelling at people and telling them they're stupid for not being more rational. You know, not putting down people who of faith who if they were rational, they would know that those people really didn't have a whole lot of choice in what they believe. We're all driven by all sorts of, not, not screaming and yelling and being difficult, but, but gathering people together and listening to them and finding out what their stuff is and then figuring out a way to kind of make things better and help people lift themselves out of oppression. So listen, if you're, if you're not energized, you weren't paying attention. And if you're, if, if you're here by now, you probably were paying attention. So you probably are energized. So go to the website, barcampolo.org. On the episode notes for this, there's lots of good stuff. You're going to dig it. Um, get involved. Write a letter. Show up in New York. You know, reach out to Greg and tell him you heard, you heard about him on this program and tell him what he means to you. And be inspired. That's it. What we have is energy. So go and use that energy and, uh, and send some of it back our way by sending some people our way so that we can continue to build this lovely community called Humanize Me. See you next time on the show. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at humanize me pod on Twitter and humanize me podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search humanize me on Facebook to ask your own question on the show. Leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. 2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. Hey, you could be larger than life, bigger than the world, living out the hopes and dreams of every boy and every girl. Hey, you could fly Cool.